Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. Ready or not, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, he is a son of New Jersey who also has deep California roots. A Stanford grad who played tight end on the football team there. Before heading home to become mayor of Newark and now U.S. Senator from Jersey. Cory Booker is our guest. Marisa and I talked with him this past weekend at the California Democratic Party convention in San Francisco in a very shady part of Moscone Center. <laughs> shady isn't actually shaded, there not, were very not few lights. dangerous. Yes, it was uh, right yeah. next to the unplugged gelato bar machine. <laughs> the senator was very gracious, pulled up a chair. Super, super fun. And, you know, we did talk about it ahead of time. Booker is a talker, right? And so we wanted to make sure we got him somewhere outside of the normal convention routes because we knew he couldn't help himself if we were around delegates. He would want to talk to them. Yeah, in fact, as he made his way to us, he was stopped about 100 times <laughs> yeah, totally. for selfies and couldn't help himself, which, you know... He's, he's a very warm guy, and I think, uh, as folks will hear when we get to the interview in a few minutes, uh, very interesting life story. I mean, I feel like every single presidential candidate we have interviewed so far, there's been six of them, I've left, um, you know, feeling really impressed by their breadth of experience, just they're, they're interesting people. It's been really great to be to have the opportunity to sit down with these folks, um, especially given how crowded the field is. I really get to some of these like issues of their childhoods and what brought them into politics. Yeah, how they got to be who they are today. Yeah. And, you know, so often that kind of gets forgotten or papered over whenever they make a mistake or they have a policy and paper like the they roll race out. Stuff, the horse race yeah. stuff. Yeah, exactly. So there were, what, Speaking of. 14 <laughs> horses uh, over the weekend, 14 of them uh, running for president. And uh, they were, you know, they were there. Uh, Buttigieg, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Sanders, Castro, Inslee, and a couple who got booed, Governor Hickenlooper and uh, John Delaney, who uh, I'm not sure many people know much about, former congressman from Maryland. Yeah. But it was interesting to hear, to hear them both get booed on different days, uh, Hickenlooper on Saturday. I mean, clearly, I think with Hickenlooper, that was part of his plan. Oh, yeah. He, he came in. He specifically, I mean, you know, he threw out a line about socialism, got booed on that, threw out <laughs> some lines about the Green New Deal. I mean, it was clear. And then his campaign had the press release already to roll out. I mean, to me, the most sort of interesting thing, I think we were all waiting to see how Kamala Harris did. It's her, not just her home state, but her hometown in San Francisco. Um, but in some ways, she really got overshadowed by the welcome that the delegates gave to Elizabeth Warren 
senator from Massachusetts. She really did. And, you know, it was a warm welcome for Kamala, for sure. Uh, but I think part of it is, you know, people out here don't really know Elizabeth Warren. They've heard about her. She's been characterized in a certain way uh, as being not electable, quote unquote, with air quotes. And then to see her, she's really a great talker. Uh, I think she's, she's very getting folksy. better, yeah. too, at being that folksy and sort of like, because she's, you know, she comes from this law professor background. So I think that she tends Harvard, to- Harvard, pointy-headed. Yeah, yeah but she's not really that. like that as a, as a person, as a speaker, I should say. I don't know her as a person. But uh, yeah, and she attracted, I think, 6,000 people the night before in Oakland. Uh, so yeah, I think there was a lot of buzz about her. People liked what she had to say. Uh, she was seemed to have a lot of people, you know, a lot of organized support there as well. And yeah, as you said, I think after the weekend, she was the one that had created the buzz, I yeah. think, for the, I mean, for the convention. You also just wonder, like, you realize how susceptible we all are to sort of the what's in the ether around who's getting the buzz and who's excited, you know, excited about whom. I think, obviously... Democratic Party in California, the delegates there skew even further left than yeah. <laughs> most anyone. But I also think that they knew coming in that Warren does seem to be on an upswing, that there's been a lot of questions about Harris and whether her candidacy has stalled. And I, I guess part of me just wonders how much of that they're picking up too and running with, you know? Yeah. And what we also picked up is how many of the candidates, including Warren and Sanders, not Kamala Harris, uh, took, a, took a little well, shot at Joe Biden. Not uh, always by name, but sometimes. Never, yeah, actually never by name, you know, but it was very clear who they were talking about as people who were part of Washington, not willing to think big, you know, just hoping the Republicans will come around if we're just patient. Uh, And that was certainly Elizabeth Warren's message. And you, you can just tell they're all kind of honing their their hits on him for yeah. the debate uh, later this month in Florida. Which should be fun. And we should also mention the big news of the convention. Rusty Hicks, L.A. labor leader, is elected as chair of the party. This follows a lot of upheaval at the California Democratic Party. The former chair, Eric Bauman, resigned in disgrace over sexual harassment allegations last year. Hicks beat out Kimberly Ellis, who had lost also two years ago. Very different concession and outcome this time for Ellis, even though she lost both times. It was a definitive loss, and I think... Um, you know, she she was graceful. She was graceful. She sent out congratulatory uh, message to him and, you know, no sense of being bitter, uh, which I think is obviously good for the party. And, you know, it's interesting because before the election, I think you and I, we had talked about how Rusty Hicks was so low key, mm-hmm. you know, certainly compared to Kimberly Ellis. But I think in a way that helped him in the That's end, totally. you know, between uh, President Trump and what happened with Eric Bauman. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think that maybe maybe members of the party were looking for a little stability and a little someone who's a little less bombastic, maybe. Interesting thing before we go to break and, and Booker, I did notice in one of the um, statements she put out, she mentioned that they had gotten some d- threats from white supremacists. And it's funny because I noticed that she seemed to have ha- bigger security, security than yes. anyone else there. And, and I wondered about that, even Kamala, who ended up getting rushed on a stage at another event that weekend. So, you know, it just does put in context, I think, just what a sort of messed up time in a lot of ways we're in and how hard it can be to be a public figure. Definitely a sacrifice. All right, let's take a short break. And when we come back, our conversation with New Jersey Senator and presidential candidate Cory Booker. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Randal Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer along with Marisa Lagos, and we're thrilled to be joined by the junior senator from New Jersey, Senator Cory Booker. Welcome to Political Breakdown. It's really great to be on. Thank you for having me. So we're here at the Democratic Convention. You just uh, really rallied and roused up the the group. Um, Why do you want to be president? Well, I'm really frustrated that we seem to be a nation where uh, many people are beginning to think that the forces tearing us apart are stronger than those forces holding us together. And this tribalistic politics, us versus them, uh, fear-based politics, zero-sum game, this is not who we are. We're a nation where the ideals of the beloved community are what got us this far. And so my commitment is to running for president, not just because of my policy ideas and the things I think can help us on the march towards justice for all, but also because I think our country needs a revival of civic grace. It needs healing. It needs us to be called back together uh, as a nation. And, 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 and we may not have everybody, but we're too divided right now to succeed. And we need, we need stronger coalitions and stronger commitment to justice. You talked about you know, the idea that Democrats need to not just be about beating somebody or about what they don't like, but about what they do like. I mean, do you feel like you're hearing that from everybody? And, and what are you trying to do to push that forward? Look, I know there's a lot of folks who even say in polls their number one issue is beating Donald Trump. And I get that. Um, I, I see the, the hurt that he causes the, from his policies to just his rhetoric, the, the moral vandalism on the fabric of our, of our community. But still, that is too small of an ambition. And the challenges going on in my community uh, from, from uh, wage stagnation to... Uh, uh, underfunded public schools, all of these things have been going on since before Donald Trump. And so we need to have bigger ambitions than just beating him. And we also need to understand that we can't beat his darkness with our darkness. We need to bring the light and his hate with our hate. We need to bring the love. I, I remember going into a town hall in, in, in Iowa and some big guy sees me. I'm a you know, former tight end at Stanford University, former All-American football player. But he sees this big, <laughs> I thought he was thinking he's going to have a testosterone moment. He puts his arm around me and says, hey, man, uh, you need to punch Donald Trump in the face. And I stop in my tracks and I look at him and I go, dude, that's a felony. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and I'm sorry. We're, he wants us to fight him on his turf and his terms. And, I, and I'm saying enough of that. That's not how we've beaten bullies and demagogues before in our, in our democracy. We beat them by calling to the conscience of this country, the moral imagination of an you grew up in a fairly well-off white suburb in New Jersey, and I think your dad once described your family as four raisins in a, a tub of vanilla ice cream. Yes, what yes. was it like growing up there? Um, you know, it, it definitely was this nurturing soil. I mean, I am who I am because I had a community that loved me. I mean, uh, people who worked full-time jobs, coming to coach me after school, teachers, public school teachers who were 
saw that I was afraid of speaking in front of crowds, so they put me on a stage in theater, uh, friends who I ate more meals at their house than ours. But, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. There was a lot of implicit racial bias back then that I felt as well and had incidences growing up that were hurtful to a young psyche developing in this world. Like what? I mean, look, you realize when you start driving that your parents, with fear in their eyes, uh, t- start having these tough conversations and you see yourself getting pulled over more than your friends. You're the one that's followed in a mall when you go in. Uh, you're the one that gets stopped and questioned by security guards. Um, you have you know, moments where I've had uh, just seen the utter racism of uh, some folks, You know, an incident with a friend's parents that I'll never forget. So the, 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 my life wasn't bereft of those things, but I had parents that grounded me with stories about the bigotry and hate that they experienced, but also about how love overcame those things, literally to move into my neighborhood. It was a white couple that posed as my parents to buy the home, and on the day of the closing was a volunteer white lawyer who who confronted the real estate agent's bigotry and and discrimination and, and literally took a punch from my family because the real estate agent didn't give up. He punched my dad's lawyer in the face, said the dog on my father. So this is the power of what my parents taught me is that the gardens of our democracy have never been free of hatred and bigotry and demagoguery. Uh, But what the power of our democracy has been, there's always been people willing to to weed out uh, that and and constantly push uh, to to cultivate uh, the fruits of our society, which are manifest when we come together across the lines that divide us and affirm the ties that bind us. It sounds like your parents were pretty upfront about those things. And I mean, I think in a situation like that, like, you know, you're probably sort of forced into being political, whether you want to be or not. But I, I just wonder if politics was something beyond the sort of racial politics questions that was a big deal at your house. Was it a kitchen table conversation? Were they surprised when you went on this route? Um, look, my parents were more activists than politics. Than in politics, politics was always a mean to a means to an end of justice. But the things that were emphasized in my house were more. The organizations like the Fair Housing Council my mom led, the homeless organization that my mom would eventually lead. This, I was enamored by great activists. So there was my hero coming out of law school, who I wanted to be when I grew up, quote so to speak, was a guy named Jeffrey Canada, who read, led something in Harlem called the Harlem's Children's Zone. And so politics to me was, I always say the best way to make God laugh is to make plans for yourself. And I added cynicism about politics um, when I was younger. And the next thing you know, the tenant leaders and organizers are pushing me to run uh, for city council, something I really resisted until I got some very tough talk from these elder tenant leaders in my community. All right, let's go back and Let's go back a little bit. Yeah, now I know your mom went to USC. You went to Stanford. Yes. So how did you get on this side of the continent? Well, my mom went to Fisk University, HBCU in in, in Tennessee, and then she did her grad work uh, at USC. She's from you know, manual arts high school. I have an LA family, and and so I always joke that I know more about Knott's Berry Farm and Magic Mountain oh my gosh, than anybody not still else in the eighties and the nineties. I don't know. I can, I could give I you. A, I could probably too. still draw the Knott's Berry Farm <laughs> amusement rides back then. Um, so I I grew up with grandparents who raised their grandchildren, even though I was three thousand miles away. They loaded us up in a mobile home that was this puke green color that they called the Green Dream, and we drove across this country, breaking down often. <laughs> and I, I could tell you about Howard how, uh, uh, Holiday Inns and the best pools, and but they that's how culture is transferred. And 
you know, that, that African-American experience, that American experience so shaped me. Listening to parent, grandparents that grew up in the Depression, who knew what it meant to get a union job on an assembly line in Detroit, um, who saw the power of uh, uh, civil rights activism. And, and that sort of, that, those were my dreams, uh, to be an activist. Because I had parents that told me that this country was not finished yet. We still had a lot of injustice. And the only way I could pay back the blessings that I inherited from struggle was to to pay it forward and be a part of the struggle. So you played football at Stanford. I did. Um, I talk got into Stanford because of a 4.0, 1,600, 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 <laughs> receiving yards. <laughs> what was it like being there? And I mean, was that, I, I assume when you're playing football, that's a, a large part of your focus, basically, when you're on campus. It's maybe not, I don't know, marching no, in the streets. Campus. Well, look, I still look back at college and I don't understand how I slept because, look, I was president of my class, one of the co-presidents of my class. I ran, on first time I had a chance to run a nonprofit uh, was a tr crisis counseling center which was one of my more formative experiences of my life um, especially sitting on a phone and taking everything from suicide calls depression calls but so you're doing that and you're playing football yeah I literally it was it was a lot of years with little sleep and trying to be a activist working in East Palo Alto in East Palo Alto area uh, I fell in love with what I thought was going to be my career, working with kids in inner city communities. Um, How did your fellow football players feel about that? Did they care? Look, I think there was some tension with me and the coaches. Uh, what, like over what? Over the fact that I was not 100% one-dimensional and would come to practice sleep debt. And, you know, I think that by the time I reached my senior year, most people don't know the, the full story. I have a year of eligibility left which I offer up to any California college. Um, <laughs> um, but but um, my last year, everybody thought I was coming back. I had a pretty good senior season, but I had a fifth year of eligibility. And at the end, Denny Green, then the coach, basically said, I, I'm, I don't want you to come back. Uh, you know, this is, football's not a priority for you, is basically uh, what he was saying. And was I that hard to hear? Or it was the first time I really felt like I confronted failure. I, I, it was... At that point, I was 21, 22 years old. It was the toughest life blow. I was like, what are you talking about? This is my identity. This is who I am, and I'm good. Um, but it, it turns out that that old idea that when uh, God shuts a, a, a door, he blows open a whole new portal to another existence because I would not be, I wouldn't have gone on to be a Rhodes Scholar, which at that point, seemed insane to be outside of the United States of America for two years as a guy who had never gone out of our country except for maybe a Caribbean island. Um, it ended up being one of the best experiences of my life. What do you feel you learned playing football uh, and being at Stanford, but really the football that oh. you use now in public life? Besides the not sleeping. Well, the grit of the gridiron. I mean, I, I learned my lessons of, you know, hard work and sacrifice does pay off that you're playing a team sport in football and that one of the best things you can do is to be a team leader in the sense of not a position or a title but leading with example taking care of your brother uh, uh, it's in that same trench with you um, that deferred gratification that um, sacrifice for your fellow in this case fellow man um, all of these things shaped my life so much I mean I rely on football lessons a lot. And in fact, I tell a metaphor a lot in this campaign, which is I used to know in high school when we were going to score a touchdown, when I started hearing the defense 
arguing amongst themselves and yelling at each other or blaming each other. I knew we were going to fly through that defense because I'm sorry, if you're divided, you cannot stand. And it's what I worry about in America today is that the way we talk to each other or talk about each other, it, 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 we are a nation that wa is watching China build 18,000 miles of high-speed rail, and we can't even get it together in this country to build rail along our west coast. Oh, we know. we know. Yeah, we know. Yeah, right? yes. So, okay, so you go to um, Oxford, do the roads thing, yes. you know, yes. and then you went to Yale for law school, is that right? Yeah, two, two amazing years. I don't want to shortchange it. I did everything from travel the planet Earth to study Hinduism and, and, and Torah, and it was really two of the more broadening years of my life and then I came back to Yale Law School and as my dad was starting to tease me back then he goes boy you got more degrees in the month of July but you ain't hot uh, <laughs> um, you know you know you, life is not about the degrees you get it's about the service you give so did you ever think about becoming like a minister or anything I did a lot actually that's so funny because that was really what my internal debate was whether to go to uh, uh, to study theology or to study or to be a lawyer and the devil won out and I went to law school <laughs> so you eventually moved back or moved to New York and into to Newark. Uh, to Newark. Yes, I yeah. just said New York. No, no, Newark. No. Newark. Yes. You can see New York. Yes, right? yeah. Well, they, New York can see us. Ah, <laughs> there you go. So you end up moving into this pretty notorious public housing project, yeah. or around that. And I just wonder to begin with, like, why? Like, what was what was the thinking there? What, what were you? Look, I, I think that we. For me, my moral compass and my faith tradition, you want to find me, I want to live in the places that people say don't live. I want to be in, in solidarity with communities that are too often looked down upon or overlooked or dis, disrespected, disregarded, and, and, and that's who I wanted to live with. And it was one of the best decisions I've made in my life. It's why I still 20 You still plus live years. in that neighborhood, right? Yeah, I still do. And the, the, I always say I got my BA from Stanford, but got my PhD from the streets of the city in Newark because the greatest heroes I've ever met are, were my neighbors, were the tenant leaders, were the block leaders. I mean, I, I have learned lessons of hope and, and, and lessons of grit and grace and love that uh, I, I, I get very emotional, in fact, about the, the way that Newark had, had a way of breaking me down and then rebuilding me. I wonder, like, I mean, you've been single, you have a girlfriend now, but if you hadn't been a single person and you raised a family, do you think you would have stayed there? Because I know you saw some really heartbreaking things with the kids around that neighborhood as well. Yeah, look, I, I hope that right now, you know, I hope Rosario is the one and and it, we're building a great relationship. And But she knows my values, which are I don't want to separate myself from the cause of my, what I think is the cause of my country. I, staying rooted in Newark informs me every single day of the urgencies of the injustices. And look, dating in, in the projects was hard. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I cannot tell you that a good litmus test if a woman would come back to me, come back with me to, to my, I mean, I have just funny stories, being on a date literally and having somebody break and enter while you're sitting there at the couch and, and seeing the reaction on the woman's face as somebody kicks open my door. Talk to, about a buzzkill. Yeah, well, to charge at me. It was the, And you're an elected official. Like, what a weird dichotomy, right? Because I, I would think it would be weird dating as a public figure, but then you've got, like, and you're coming back to the project. Well, well, well that, at, at that time, actually, I had just lost a mayor's election. And so, I, 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 you know, look, my pathway through politics I took on a, 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 a massive machine that had the backing of the state Democratic Party. The retail politics and organizing I know is coming up the most difficult way, and 
Um, so there were many years in the wilderness in Newark where I didn't have security and I didn't have protections and I was living with the community where we had unfortunately regular shootings and neighbors of mine died and you wake up in the morning and you walk through your, the elevators don't work and you're on the 16th floor and you walk through the hallways that are dark or staircases that are dark and have to check pulses of people lying on, in, in, who sought refuge, homeless folks in your, I mean this is, these are events that make you understand how much we are falling short of that beloved community because it makes no sense the way we do things in America and it's cruel and I had a community that, that schooled me in a, in a way that has deepened my capacity for self-reflection, for humility, for reverence in the face of God's creations, and for love. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos, and our guest today is Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. He's running for president, as you may have heard. Um, I want to ask you about your diet. Yes. yes. <laughs> you're vegan. I am a proud vegan, yes. How did that happen? And well, what do you eat at the Iowa Fair? Well, uh, well, <laughs> so, uh, how did it happen? Uh, so in, in 1992, I became a vegetarian, and I was a very competitive athlete at the time, very in tune with my body, and I wanted the diet that best worked for me. And when I gave up uh, meat and, and uh, animal products, uh, my body felt like I just soared. The energy level, the lack of sleep, that, the less sleep that I needed, the better recovery after workouts. This is why you see everybody from the quarterback uh, for the New England Patriots to... Don't uh, name them. I do not name them as a, as a Giants <laughs> fan. Uh, from the quarterback from that, uh, that team in New England to all the way to, um, to, to ultra marathoners. I mean, for my body, this was the right diet. And I knew even then that I should go all the way vegan. But you're from Jersey. It's very hard to give up New Jersey pizza. <laughs> um, but it, after over a while, I started... Corn eating, milk crust. Um, over a while, I ate less and less. And now I have a, I always say my diet is best in line with what I believe for myself. Do do voters care, do you think? I don't think voters give a damn about what's on my plate. They more care about what my policy agendas are, what's in my heart, what what you know, Americans we all have different diets. Some people are gluten free, flexitarians. I mean you go around now and everybody's got a thing. Everybody's got right. a thing, but but I think that for me I just want to live in, in best in accordance with what makes me a better and more effective public servant. And this is, this is for me, it works. So I want to ask you about race, because obviously we have a more diverse field of candidates than probably ever before. Um, but, you know, I think that it is an issue. Like, there's all these memes. You, I'm sure you've seen you and Kama, like, dance off, like, who's blacker, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> how do you want to frame race as a candidate? And, how, like, how, and are there ways that you don't want to talk about it or really do want to dig into it? I have no choice uh, to, to I, I talk about race, forget as a candidate. I mean, when I became a senator, I was shocked that the, one of the most least diverse places I'd ever been was the United States Senate and, and started fighting right away because you can't have a judiciary committee. What I was, I was loath to find a black staffer on the judiciary committee that's making decisions that disproportionately impact black communities. And so I went right away. Uh, this isn't about politics for me. It's about fighting to have a more inclusive, more equitable America. And so thank God I praised Chuck Schumer because when Schatz and I went to him and said, every Democratic senator should have to publish their diversity statistics on their staffs. It was a wonderful step that we did. And guess what? More women and more minorities are being hired in the United States Senate. So this to me is fundamental part of my purpose, which is to fight for equity, inclusion, and to deal with the 
awful, god-awful racial disparities in our country that are in everywhere from our healthcare system, where black women have four times the maternal mortality rates of white women, to our criminal justice system, where we have no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs or dealing drugs, but they're incarcerated almost four times the rate, to the point now where we have more blacks under criminal supervision in America than all the slaves in 1850. So for me, this is just who I am. It's my purpose in life. And I'm sorry, I don't know what my job will be next year, but my life is about purpose more than position and dealing with racial inequities, racial bias, the persistence and the persistent legacy of, of overtly racist policies. That's part of my purpose because America will be better. White America will be better. All of us will be better if we address uh, 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 racism and bigotry in our country. And you're friends with the only other African-American male senator, right, that, who's a Republican. Oh, he's Tim a dear, dear friend. He's a dear friend. I can write a dissertation on our disagreements, but I love the guy, and we've partnered on some really powerful legislation. I mean, I've gotten I'm proud of my bipartisan bills that I've gotten done, and with him, something that's helping California create thousands of jobs, bring in millions, if not billions of dollars worth of investment is a bill we did together called Opportunity Zones, which says for the lowest income areas, if a governor designates it as an opportunity zone, it will it has incentives to better attract investment capital. And I'm really proud of what I've accomplished across the aisle, including criminal justice reform, which he was a part of as well, which I led on the Democratic side with Dick Durbin. Does he have a hard time being a Republican? Um, I think that he's often attacked in ways that I think are unfortunate, that ways that are I think that are are not reflective of, I mean, cr constructive critiques are great, and I, I critique and fight and roll up my sleeves and wrestle with him on issues that matter, but I do not like when people attack his dignity or attack his, his, his racial authenticity. Is, is black, being black so homogeneous that we can't have people of differing political views? Is being, does it do be authentic? I mean, Arthur Ashe was attacked for not, not being black enough because he played tennis. I mean, this idea of a black essentialism is something that I resist and will fight against. And I'm glad that I found a partner across the aisle. I mean, he helped us stop some judges that Donald Trump put up, which, which were, in my opinion, patently uh, uh, racist in the, in, the, in the laws that they had pushed uh, before they were judges. So I'm, I'm proud of my friend Tim Scott in terms of our ability to work together across our divides and our differences. And I will... I will challenge people who want to, to say that 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 he's not black because of his being in a different part. Senator of the party. Senator Cory Booker, thank you so much. For I'm joining. grateful. I could, guys, for this my staff is over here. These guys are great. Just like he's got to go, he's got to go. <laughs> blame Adisu. This we is can blame the You're running for the highest office in the land, and suddenly people tell you what to do more than before. Oh yeah, you're not, you were this in is charge. not I thought your I was time. in charge. This is not my time. It's like go, go, go. Thank you guys Senator, for. Thank you so but much. this is so important for us to get to know the candidates as people, not just the policies we put forward. So I'm grateful for having this chance to talk to, to you all. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, and our engineers were Jim Bennett, Katie McMurrin, and Seal Muller. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tom. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. That's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. See you next time, everybody. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. 
They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.